Ephesians chapter 5, today we're going to do our best to get as far as we can. We're in five, uh, chapter 5, verse 22 through 33. All right? Let's dive in, see what the Word of God has for us today. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. N- not, okay, well, one amen when he knew it was coming. Not even my wife said amen. Um, that's where we're going today, so yeehaw, buckle up. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Now husbands, don't get shortchanged, here you go. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by washing the water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain, wrinkle, or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds it and takes care of it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each of you also must love his wife as he loves himself. And the wife must respect her husband. Let's pray. Father, I know when I I read a passage of scripture like this, that man, it it would have been honestly really easy to skip over and just move on to spiritual warfare and other things. Jesus, I know that this, this conjures up a lot of emotion. There may be no other passage of scripture that ties into some of our baggage from the sins that we've experienced in our life. So maybe even the sins we've committed. And Jesus, I know when we start talking about husbands and wives and marital things and submission and and, and leadership and headship and your church and and us being sacrificial in the way we love each other, Jesus, I know that it just, it conjures up all sorts of things. And so Jesus, I pray that today for the sake of us being able to understand your word and letting it be the authority of our life, we would check our baggage, our culture, and anything else that would get in the way of us truly hearing your word for what it actually is and what it actually means, that we would just come to it longing for truth that you would remove all preconceived notions, that you would even remove all of our past and history for a second so that we can re-clarify around your gospel truth and then see that in context of the truth that you revealed to us today. Jesus, I know that there are many people in this room who have been even wounded by the very verses I read today. They've been used by men in my position, men as husbands in their positions, to be poison darts that they shoot at their spouses. And Jesus, I pray that you would bring healing. You tell us in your word that it is by your stripes and by your wounds that you can bring healing. And so I pray today you bring healing to past wounds, but I also pray that by your wounds, you prevent wounds from occurring by the way your gospel is preached today. We love you. We need you. In your name, amen. All right. So we're getting ready to lean into this back half of chapter 5 and a little bit into chapter 6, and we're calling this kind of sub-series Family Matters. Again, we've been going through Ephesians for basically the whole half of this year as a church, and we kind of hit into Ephesians right here. And what Paul is doing is he is saying all that stuff that I've talked about, about who God is, what God does, and your identity in him, there are these unique avenues and aspects of life, namely marriage relationships, uh, husband and wife, uh, also kids and parents, and then employees to employer, slave master. He said, these are laboratories of life where you'll be able to actually see whether or not you believe and put into practice all those things that were said to be true about God and about you in all those verses before. 
And so we're going to take some specific time to lean into these things. And I know, like I prayed about, man, I know when you go through a passage of scripture like this in a room like this with people like this in it and a culture like ours where all this stuff is kind of spinning and swirling to come right out of the gate and say that anybody should submit to anybody right off the bat in our American culture is just like a no-no zone. But I want to lean into this because when we go to this, We've got to ask really two absolutely big questions. First of all, is do I believe that God's word is true? Do I actually believe that this has any say or significance in my actual life? Do I believe that this is true? And then two, because I believe it is true, will I obey it? See, I want you to know this about how God feels about you. He, he really respects you as a person. And the reason that God respects you as a person, the reason Jesus respects you as a person, is because you were created in the image and likeness of God. The Bible, the Latin word for that is you were in the imago Dei. You're created in the image and likeness of God. So God respects you because he has aspects of him in you. And while God respects you as a person, he does not respect your preferences. He does not respect your opinions. He does not really even respect how you think it should be. <laughs> and so we have to lay down our preferences, our expectations, and how we think things should be in order to come just straight to God's word and go, God, what are you actually saying here? What does that actually mean? And then, big question, will I actually obey that and live it out? And the reason why we're going to spend some time kind of going through this a little bit slower than maybe we've hit our new pace is because we're going to start talking about family. And you can look around at the world that we live in, and one of the things that you know and I know is that you can look around the world and you can see a lot of broken families. Amen? We see brokenness all around, and you see brokenness in our society. And, and I would dare so even say that we can trace many of the brokenness and all the brokenness that we see in our society, in our family, in our country, we can trace that back to brokenness in the home. Brokenness where we were born. Brokenness in those locations. I've experienced this in my own life. It's my own story. And so we, we come in and we experience this, this brokenness and, and broken home after broken home leads to broken city after broken city after broken state after broken country after broken world. And it's not getting any better. I had somebody kind of having a conversation with me after the first service and, and we kind of came to this truth that two of the primary ways God chooses to identify himself. First and foremost, he says, I'm a father. And one of the ways that Satan tries to attack the church and to attack God and to attack me and you because he knows if you are in Christ, he can't un-in Christ you. He can't de-adopt you. He can't get you back. If you're in God's hands, if you're in God's family, you're in God's family. But what he can do is if you wear one of those titles, men of God in the room, if you wear one of the same titles that he does and you're a father, you know what he can do? Is he can get you to look like a really jacked up father so the rest of the world thinks that he's a really jacked up father. So he has an all-out relentless war on fatherhood. And he's winning. Also, God, especially Jesus, chooses to identify himself as the groom. I'm the groom, and the church is my bride. The bride and the groom. Another area where our society, under the influence of Satan, says, I can't, I can't get them to not be God's kids. I can't snatch them out of his hands. But what I can do is I can, through their marriages, this crazy idea that God had to be an evangelistic tool so that the world would see how Christ loves the church through the way a Christian husband loves a Christian wife, I can actually really come in and jack that up so that they never understand how God loves the church and Jesus is the groom and the church is the bride because they see Christian brides and grooms 
just blowing it all up. And their divorce rate being exactly the same as people who are not a part of the church. So there's an onslaught of attack on both fatherhood and the marriage. And so we have to be people who go, okay, what in the world can we do differently? And the good news is, this is really good news, is I have seen the local church fight back this darkness. My life is a testimony to the fact that a kid can come from a broken home full of abuse, both physical, drug, substance, come from that type of environment, come from a father abandoning and going through formative years of adolescence with no father figure there, and then come into a place where God actually redeems and restores and uses the local church to do that. My life is a testimony to that. If it was not for the way the local church showed me what it meant to be a man of God, I would not be here today. So I believe that there is restorative factors that are at play for each and every single one of us. My boy's life will be different because I attended Whitesburg Christian Church. And my hope is that generations after generations of kids' lives will be different because people like you attend McDonough Christian Church. There was this the pastor who's actually had a fall from grace, so take his things that he says with a grain of salt, but I, I think there is some truth to this. I was at a conference, and I heard him say, the local church is the hope of the world. And I can tend to agree with that, that the local church is the hope of the world. If we want to end poverty, well, um, we have the God who owns a cattle on a thousand hills. That's brisket for everybody. Like, if we want to uh, have everybody know the gospel, well, we, we, the church is the one that sends the missionaries out to do that. The church is the hope of the world. But then you take it a step backwards and you go, okay, if the local church is the hope of the world, what's the hope of the local church? And as I thought through that, prayed through that, and began to ask people who are smarter than me that question, the conclusion, that the best conclusion I could come to, that maybe the family unit, like your actual last name and the people that you live with, the family unit may actually be the hope of the church because if the church isn't made up of families who are practicing and living out, even in their own homes, what we say is actual our reality as people who are part of the family of Christ, if we can say all that and come in and say, we're God's family and we live like that and act like that for an hour and a half on Sunday, but then we go home and our houses are exploding with hate, vitriol, and all sorts of backstabbing and, and all sorts of terrible things, then that's backwards. And so if the local church is the hope of the world, I would say that the family unit is the hope of the church. That is what our churches are built up of, of different last names, all combined and brought together under the blood of one last name, Jesus Christ. But to even take it a step further backwards, well, the church is the hope of the world. The family is the hope of the church. What's the hope of the family? And I don't have to tell you a bunch of statistics because you have stories. Every person in this room knows that if you have a godly father in a family, I'm not talking about God the Father. I'm talking about a flesh and blood man, a godly father in the family, the chances of that family thriving goes up exponentially. Now, do not hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that a father is the only hope for a family. Far be it from that. That was not the case in my family. That's where the church comes into play. And the church being the family in the absence of those fathers, in the absence of those mothers, in the absence of even good mothers or fathers, the church comes in and says, this is what it looks like to be a man and woman of God. But we're going to specifically lean into some things here, men in the room, 
Because I believe exponentially, we increase our chances of being the hope for the world, being the hope for the family. If us as fathers in the room can actually find some hope in Jesus. And so my goal today is to take um, this passage where he definitely talks about women and submit to your husbands, but we're going to specifically lean into us as husbands and how do we become a husband worthy to have a wife even submit to us. We're going to get into the theology of that today, like the, the deep, the why aspect of that. And again, I'm a, I'm a man. I'm one of you. I know that what you really want me to do is just to tell you how. Like, bro, can you just... Ten, top 10 list of things to do. Look, I've been there, you've been there. What happens is you go home and you start doing the top 10 list and then a storm hits the house and you realize you had no foundation. And so that whole thing blows up. So my hope and my prayer today, what I'm gonna do, everything within my power to do is to give you the foundational gospel reasons why we lay our lives down and love our wives the way that Christ loved the church in such a way that the world looks at our marriages our future marriages. So the way that the world will look at those and they will see them as actually our best evangelical tool, the way that God envisioned and planned it to be from the beginning. So before we get into what Paul says about marriage, I want you to know where he got it from, okay? So it's not just Paul riffing and going, okay, here's my thoughts about marriage. And again, maybe you would lose credibility there because Paul was not what? What was Paul? He's a single dude, all right? How many of your single friends do you get marriage advice from? <laughs> like, if you have, uh, you, you know, uh, I don't know. That usually doesn't go well, okay? But Paul, again, he's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but I want you to even see where he got his views on marriage and his view on love. He gets it from Jesus. I don't know what just happened. Something just happened. Well, hello, this is Jesus. A new commandment I give you. All right, let me give you the context. Let me put the scene in this for you. So Jesus has just got through washing his disciples' disgusting feet, okay? He took off his outer garment. He was their rabbi. He takes off his outer garment. He puts on a towel, and he goes, and he washes these guys' disgusting feet. And he gets up from the table, and he looks around at all of them. He says, a new commandment I give you, which, again, remember, these are all a bunch of good little Jewish boys, Right? So if Jesus comes on the scene, he's saying, I'm giving you a new commandment. First of all, they should have said, mm-mm, we already got our commandments. We got them. We don't need, we, we don't, you're not allowed to give us a new one. So the fact that nobody says, shut up, Jesus, we already got enough commandments was, was truth to the fact that they believed he was God and he had authority to give them new commandments. So he goes and says, here's a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You guys remember the golden rule, right? Jesus laid out the golden rule in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, love other people, treat other people the way you want to be treated. That was his golden rule. Well, here, after he gets through washing feet, he rolls out them the platinum rule. So it's not just going, love other people and treat other people the way you want to be treated. He takes it even a step further. He says, do you see how I treat you? That's real love. I'm not just asking you to treat people the way you want to be treated. I'm asking you to treat people the way I treat you. It's a whole different level of love. Because he says, treat them as I has loved you. You must also love one another and to dismiss any sort of confusion around what in the world he was actually talking about there. He wasn't just saying, you got to clean disgusting feet and get stuff out of Judas's toenails. He took it a step further. John 15, 13, two more chapters after this. He says, greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. See, what Paul is picking up here is what Jesus redefined as love. 
Jesus came on the scene and said, love no longer is this feeling of infatuation where you just like something and it creates this immense feeling in you and you just long to have it. That's lust. That's infatuation. I'm giving you a new definition of love. And this new definition of love is inextricably connected to sacrifice. If there is no sacrifice in it, it is not love. Call it something different. He said, love will always require sacrifice. And if there is no sacrifice, there is no love, which is why Paul can say something as crazy as wives Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, again, women, I wish I could see like thought bubbles above your head right now about like what everybody thinks about this. I'd probably preach a much funner message, uh, but I can't. Um, I, I, I will and will never be able to read a woman's mind. Um, but let me try to answer maybe some of the questions that come to mind here. One of the first ones I think is, why us? Why didn't he tell the... Husbands to submit. Why, like, why are we the first person addressed and talked to? Well, first of all, let's, let's lean into a little bit of the context of the church in Ephesus. Okay, in the church in Ephesus, Ephesus is not a Jewish colony. Ephesus is a group of people there in the, in the Ephesians. When you think the city of Ephesus, think the city of Seattle. Port city, very liberal. That is the church in Ephesus. And it's under Roman rule, and they're under Roman rule for Husbands and wives, and women's roles in particular, they would have been under what's called patria potestos, which is essentially the father of the family rules everything. So if you're a woman in Ephesus, do you know what you are? Your property. So what Paul is doing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is actually the most forward-thinking, liberal thing you could ever imagine in their context. In a, in a formal letter like this, you would never address women. You would never address children, which he's getting ready to do. You would never address slaves, which he's getting ready to do. The Bible is the leading way in progressive, involunt- or progressive involvement of the people who were ostracized and left out. And so Paul comes on the scene and says, hey, ladies, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. And maybe you're going, well, why us? Well, you would maybe be happy to know that in this actual verse, if you're actually reading it in the Greek, the way it's written in the Greek, the Bible was written in the Greek language and then translated in English, there's actually not the word submit even in there, in, even in this verse, all right? So when you're going, hey, why us? I'll tell you why us, because it's not just for you. If you read it in the Greek, it would say this, wives, to your own husbands, as to the Lord. Now you would read that and go, well, that makes no sense. And it doesn't make sense. Unless you read it in the context of Ephesians 5, 21. So let's go back up there. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, who is this talking to? Drum roll. Everybody. <laughs> Everybody. He, he just got through saying, as being filled with the Holy Spirit, submit to one another. Out of reverence for Christ. This is not a wife thing. This is not a husband thing. He says, if you're in Christ, our call, our job as people who are filled with the Holy Spirit, it's, a, it's the Holy Spirit of Jesus who surrendered his life on a cross. More to that to come. It's that Holy Spirit. So because we have that Holy Spirit in us and we're in Christ, everybody submits to one another out of reverence for Christ. And what happens here in this verse is he goes, he, it would sound like this if you were reading it as Paul was writing it. Everybody, we've got to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, that means to your husbands. 
So the word submit's not actually in there in verse 22. So wise, we can get, you, we, you can get caught up on that verse and go, well, well, well that, my husband don't have to do anything. Well, no, actually, we all do. Husbands, wives, and everybody in between. If you are in the family of Christ, our call is to be filled with the Holy Spirit and submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So let's, let's go back and kind of pick apart that verse a little bit more. Wives, submit to your own husbands, which, amen there. You know, nobody, none, you ain't got to submit to me. I'm not your husband. Um, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And I want to lean into those, that last line right there, as to the Lord. And um, when I was praying through this and, and processing through, I think this is why there can be a, um, a bristling when we hear this verse because we think that submit to your husband just means that I have to do whatever he says to do. But I want you to see how you're supposed to submit to your husband. Submit to your husband as to who? As to the Lord. What he's saying here is women, women of God here in this church in Ephesus, in this church here in McDonough, we submit to our husband the way we submit to God. Now, does God ask you to, to submit to sinful things? No. Does God ask you to neglect the right things so that and as you neglected them, you would be sinning? No. So what he's saying here, women, and this is where this verse has been misconstrued and used as poison to manipulate many women in the church, many women even in the homes, to doing things that are not of God, is your call is not to just complete blanket submission. Your call is to submit to the things of God that they lead you into that are in concert with the things of God. So a perfect example of this is outside of the whole concept of marriage. Um, the apostle Peter and Paul, they would bump into times where they would be asked by the governing authorities to do things that would be sinful for them to do. But these are the same fellows who would tell us, obey the governing authorities. So on one hand, it's submit, surrender to, and obey the governing authorities. Obey the speed limit. Don't lie on your taxes. Obey the governing authorities. But... Peter gets thrown in prison. They kind of whoop him up a little bit. And then when they're getting ready to let him out, they go, hey, listen, <clears throat> big guy, we need you to stop preaching this gospel. Now, again, are they still the authority or not? They're totally still the authority. But what have they just asked Peter to do? Sin. And under that influence and Peter's knowledge that you just asked me to do something, Peter goes, who am I supposed to listen to? God or you? I'm going to keep preaching the gospel. And, and women in the room, I would say that is the case as well. So if there is a man or a male authority in your life who is saying, you have to submit to my authority and my will and my purpose for your life, and either doing that thing would be to cause you to sin or neglecting to do a certain thing would be to cause you to sin, you are not under Christian gospel obligation to do that thing. And that's something that, with the help of hopefully... Uh, church leaders, women of faith, men of faith, we can help guide people, guide women of God through that because this is one of those places in scripture where it is ripe for manipulation. And many have been manipulated under those words of just blanket submission. But that is not what Paul is saying. He's saying submit as to the Lord. He goes on and he kind of explains why. He says, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and himself is its savior. 
So let's talk about Christian headship. So I'm supposed, or a woman of God is supposed to submit to the husband because he's the head of the wife as Christ is the head of church. So we're leaning to this idea of head. So what are we talking about when we say this word head? Headship, Christian headship is leading, providing, protecting, and guiding. That's what Jesus does for the church. So if I'm as a man going, okay, what does it look like to be head of my wife? I cannot just go, what do I think I should do? I go, what did Christ do? That's my example. That's my guy. How does Christ lead the church? How does he provide for the church? How does he protect the church? How does he lovingly guide the church? That is where I get my P's and Q's from. This is, he goes on and continues to thought. He says the church, the church submits to Christ. And we have to submit to Christ because there's no way that we're in Christ without Christ. The reason we're able to be adopted and redeemed into this family to be called Christians alone is because he did the work. He is the head. He is the cornerstone. And so we submit to him because without him, we're not a part of the family of Christ. We're still sons and daughters of disobedience out on our own, living in the orphanage that is this hell-filled world. He says, Jesus brought you into the family and he guides how we live and operate in the family. He says, so also... Wives are to submit in everything to their husbands. Again, this in everything is one of those places where we go, everything? Again, I hopefully gave you some guardrails and some boundaries to know that that does not mean in everything. We're going to get definitely much more into the details next week. Again, I want to get you into the theology of stuff this week. We're going to get into X's and O's next week. So he says, we're going to do this because this is what Christ is to the church. He's chosen to let husbands be identified as these leaders. It's important that you understand the word submit. The word submit is from a Greek word. Uh, it's actually a compound word. The Greek word there for submit is hypotasso. Let's say that together. Hypotasso. Hypotasso. Hypotassium. Hypotasso is that Greek word for submit. Now, those of us who, who, who maybe you grew up in church cultures where this was kind of a thing. Hypotasso is a compound word. Hypo means under and tasso means arrange. So when he says submit to, he is saying arrange yourself under. What he's not saying is you're no longer equal to that man. You're no longer equal to them. So surrender and submit and be obliged to what they tell you to do. He's saying, no, 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 no. We're going to submit ourselves under. If it is a military rank, we're in whatever person we bump into, we're going to lower ourselves down. And remember, this is not just something he said to wives. He said this to anybody who is in Christ. You're in Christ. Arrange yourself under the other in Christ person. That's his command. That's his decree. To arrange yourself under. He goes on from here. He begins to lean into the husband side of things. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, this word love, you may have heard this before at a church service. There's a few different kinds of love translated in that word. There's primarily three in the Greek language that we actually see throughout the Bible. There's the eros love, which is kind of this, I don't know, R&B kind of love, like this romantic, you know, bow, chico, bow, love. That's eros love. And then there's this phileo love, which is where we get Philadelphia, just lost the World Series. Um, <laughs> rejoice. Um, this is this brotherly love. That's why Philadelphia's city of brotherly love. And then there's agape love. Now, most guys in the room, we want this to be Eros love, right? Like, we love your wife. Like, we want that R&B love. That's how I want to love her. That's the way I best, I'm, I'm most equipped, it's most natural to do it this way. But I hate to break it to you guys in the room. 
That is not the Greek word there. The Greek word there is agape. And this agape love is, is totally different. This agape love is sacrificial, higher love. It's taking initiative. Key word there, fellas. Taking initiative to act on someone else's behalf, even, key word, even at your own expense. It's not a self-serving, self-seeking love. It's taking initiative to act on someone else's behalf, knowing that it is gonna cost me something. So ladies and gentlemen in the room, what this means now is marriage is now redefined as not just this thing where a wife just willfully and obediently submits and surrenders to her husband. If we take the whole passage and put it in its whole context, what this means is marriage is mutual submission. It's me submitting to you and you submitting to me. It's both of us in Christ saying he laid down our life for us. We're going to lay down our lives for each other. And what happens then is marriage becomes a submission competition to where I'm trying to out-surrender you. I'm trying to lay down more of myself so that I can pick up more glory to God because you see him when you see less of me. It's a submission competition. And this is only possible because it's based, guys. A submission competition is only possible because our love for each other is rooted in a covenant, a promise that love is gonna grow. And the problem with most of our love right now in our society is it's not based on covenant, it's based on chemistry. And so when the chemistry is not there anymore, what do people break? The covenant. Whether they do it legally or they do it secretly. So what he's saying here is the only way you can be in submission competition with somebody is if you know you're in a covenant with them. And I think this all would redefine what biblical headship is for us. I love, to, I'm not gonna, I don't have it on a board for you, but I love Tony Evans' definition. He's talking about, he's, he says, Christian headship or biblical headship for, for men of God is, the, is God asking the wife to duck so he can punch the man in the face. That's Christian headship. Which I, I, I felt that before. So, but I would give it maybe a little bit def, a different def, definition. Biblical headship is this. It's care rather than control. And it's responsibility rather than rule because that's what Jesus did for us. He entered into the chaos of our world and didn't come in to just control the chaos, but came in to care for us in the midst of the chaos. He didn't just come in and say, um, well, you're responsible for this. Fix it, figure it out. Follow my rules so that you can. This biblical headship is saying, no, I'm going to take responsibility for these mistakes. Even though I shouldn't. Even though I don't have to. Even though I deserve the right for you to serve me, I'm going to come and serve you. And I'm going to take full responsibility and pay the full price for the sins that you've committed. And so biblical headship is that. So what I want to invite us husbands to do for a second here in the room is take a second. And I want you to close your eyes and imagine this image of a loving husband. Image of a loving husband. Image of a self-sacrificing, Jesus-filled, loving husband. I want you to get an image in your mind of a husband's love. He's fluffing pillows on the couch. He's loading the dishwasher the right way. 
he's remembering how old his wife is. Instead of just saying happy birthday, he's saying happy 34th birthday. He remembers his anniversary. Cuts the kid's fingernails. Now, all those things that you may be envisioning right now, friends, those are things that I believe a godly husband will be doing. But men of God in this room, when we close our eyes and see the purest and most beautiful example of a godly husband, you should close your eyes and see a blood-drenched face with a crown of thorns. You should close your eyes and see a left hand and a right hand stretched to the east and the west with a nail through a wrist. You should see Jesus pushing off of the nine-inch nail through his feet to avoid suffocating on his blood. If you want to see what it looks like to be a godly husband, you have to look to the cross. There is no show, no sitcom. There is no self-help book that can guide you into what it means to be a biblical Christian husband. If you want the image to be burned in your eyes so that you can live a life where your wife sees in you the man that she needs to see in you, she will see Christ in you if you see him as your guide and as your source and as your only hope in this endeavor that is being a Christian husband. Mark 10, 45, Jesus made it very clear that he did not come to meet the people's expectations, that he came to exceed them. In Mark 10, 45, he said, the son of man has not come to be served. I'm not gonna kick my feet up, sit in my recliner and make you do all these things. Now, before we just go, thank goodness Jesus didn't do that. He had full right to. He had full right to, he is God in flesh. He had full right to come in and just restore David's kingdom and make us all minions to his beck and call. But he says, no, even though I have full right and it would not be sinful for me to do these things, I did not come to be served, but I came to serve and to lay my life down as a ransom for many, for you and for me. When I think about this, it reminds me of this process I've been on through my journey of being a husband. You start out when you're a young husband and you realize that once you get married, things change, right? And the person you're married to changes and you have to change. And there are things that you have to do, right? You have to roll the towels instead of folding them the way you always folded them. You have to ask if you can spend $200, there are things that you have to do. You have to lie if she says, does this make me look fat? You, there are things that you have, just kidding. There are things that you have to do that are you laying down your life for your wife. And most men in the room, when we bump into those things in life, we, we come at it in our tone and that is, oh, I have to do this. We'll talk to our buddies and be like, oh, I have to go to my mother-in-law's this weekend. I have to. And then you get a little bit more maturity on you Maybe you go to a marriage counselor and he, and, he, and he goes, no, or you talk to a pastor and he goes, no, 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 man. You don't have to, you get to. <laughs> and he, and he kind of says it with the, well, like the smile that your kids give on picture day. You have to. You get to, yay. And that's kind of where guys get. And it's almost like we, we have to play this mental gymnastics 
to, to lay down our life for our wife. Well, I get to do this. <laughs> you know, I get to go decorative pillow shopping today. I would have loved to be at home watching the ball game, but decorative pillows it is. Let's do this. I get to. But there is actually another level that I'm praying you can get to. I'm praying I can stay at. I vacillate back and forth between all three. But this mysterious third level of biblical husbandry, it only comes through seeing Christ for who he really is. Because there is a way to see and savor Jesus for what he's done to you, where you go from, oh, I have to, to, I get to. And you actually get back to where you started, but your tone changes. So no longer are you going, oh, I have to. You're going, man, I have to. I have to lay down my life for her because now I finally see how Jesus laid down his life for me. I have to go and do these things. I have to step my game up because I see the pain that Jesus went through for me. I have to enter into uncomfortable, deep, intimate places because I want the intimacy that I have with Christ to be manifested and fleshed out in my marriage. I have to do this. And that's Jesus. Every step that he walks up the hill of Golgotha, he's not going, oh man, I have to do this. And I don't think he's just with this sarcastic smile on his face going, oh, I get to do this. Thanks, Dad. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. I think every step the hill of Golgotha, up the hill of Golgotha, he was saying, I get to do this. I get to do this. I get to, and through that immense pain, nonetheless, he's knowing I get to do this for them. I get to honor you. I get to be obedient to you, Father, because I get to be the one who makes a way for everybody to have a way to be made back into this family. I get to do this. And my hope and my prayer is that us men in the room, we can get from I have to, to I get to, back to, I have to. And the only way that happens is you have to let Jesus serve you. See, I've asked myself this question. Maybe you have too. Like, <clears throat> why is it so hard, guys? Like, you know, why is it so difficult to like lay down my life to serve my wife? Why is it so hard? Why do I still keep bumping into the same old things? And for a lot, I thought it was just because I didn't love her enough, but I really do think I love her enough. And for a lot, I just thought it was because I'm just like a broken person with bad habits. And both of those are true. But there's a much deeper reason, fellas, why I don't think we can lay down our lives to serve our wife. And here's what it is. You can't give what you don't have. Many of you men in the room are just like me, man. You're like Peter sitting around that table when Jesus comes to wash your feet. And you say, no, you ain't washing my feet. How dare you? You're God. You're Jesus. How dare you ever get on my nasty, stinky, dirty feet? No, I'm not letting you do that. I need you to hear the same things that Jesus said to Peter as he's saying to you, hey, unless I clean up these parts of you, unless you let me serve you, you have no part in me. And see, again, we, we bought into this lie of, of rugged American individualism and this lie of Christian manhood, even this lie like American manhood, that you're just a Marlboro man, lone rider. You go out and do it yourself. You don't need nobody else. You don't need no help. Who cares what anybody else thinks about me? That's garbage, man. You cannot lay down your life and serve your wife if you don't let Jesus lay down his life and serve you in the broken, dirty, filthy, unimaginable to explain to anybody else but Jesus places in your life. If you don't let him serve you in those places, clean you up in those places, you have no chance, sir. 
no chance of laying your life down for her because you haven't seen how he's laid it down for you. You're trying to fix your problems. You're trying to uh, self-help your way out of your sins and mistake, and it will not work. You can't save yourself. You can't do it. So, fellas, man, we gotta, gotta be willing to surrender. Say, Jesus, <laughs> this is where you can, you know, there's a lot of things where say, don't do what Peter did. Um, but this is one of those places where you can do like Peter did. After, after Jesus said, you ain't got no part of me unless you let me clean you up, he said, well, wash my head, my hands, my hair, you know, head to toe, Jesus, you know, get the scrubbing bubbles out. Like, let's get after this. And that's, that, like, that's one of those places where I would invite you into the attitude of Peter. But Jesus, I need you to help me here. I need you to clean me up here. I need everything that you can do to be done so that I can lay down my life to be able to serve her. She's not gonna be able to see it if you haven't received it. So marriage, I would say that marriage is much more defined by Jesus' atonement. Now, atonement is, is remove Jesus. Atonement is Jesus removing everything and anything that would get in the way of you being reconciled to God. So husbands in the room, women in the room, this is what our call in marriage is especially you husbands in the room. I now am removing anything and everything that would get in the way of my wife seeing Jesus for who he really is. Best place I could take you to this is, is Romans 5 to see what Jesus did. He said, for while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received reconciliation. So husbands, that means your role is to remove anything and everything that would keep your wives from fully grasping and experiencing the mind-blowing reality that she has been forgiven, set free, and fully reconnected to her heavenly Father. So I'd give us a new goal. The goal isn't to provide for your family in a way that you guys can retire and get a lake house. The goal for your family is not to raise well-behaved kids. The goal for your family is to just make it through your whole marriage without ever cheating on her. The new goal for your marriage, I would say, should be something like this. That through seeing the visible reality of you laying down your life for her, she would see and savor the invisible reality that Jesus laid down his life for her. If you go and you ask a bunch of different women in this room, I'm willing to bet that sometimes they struggle with believing this invisible reality that everything that they need is made available through Jesus. That all the self-image help that they need is made available in Jesus. All the insecurities that they have are solved in Jesus. All the lack of self-confidence that they may have is solved and brought to fruition in Jesus. All the struggles with infertility that she has meet their final end in the provision of Jesus. That her anxiety and worry that she has around your future, her future, and your family's future, that they find their completeness and fullness in Jesus. I would be willing to bet that almost every woman in this room would admit to the fact that she struggles with that invisible reality because sometimes it's hard to see that truth. And husbands, this is why. This is one of the reasons why you exist. Through the visible display of you laying your life down to serve her, provide for her, connect with her, pursue her intentionally. She's able to see those invisible qualities of Jesus through the visible qualities that you're putting on display to her. Women, am I close? 
And, and again, this is why I had to take you here before we start talking about here, you know, X's and O's, fellas, is because now you got to realize the call. Now you got to realize the big question is not, man, do I put food on the table? The big question for us, fellas, is does she see Christ in me? If the answer to this is no, I hate to break it to you. It doesn't matter how much money you're bringing home. It doesn't matter how much security you have. It doesn't matter how much you could beat up some jerk at a bar if he starts hitting on her. Those things are great and all. If she doesn't see Christ in you, there's nothing there. And so here's a challenge I want to invite you into. At some point this week, say as many times as you possibly can, I, Calvary, love you. Calvary is the the term for the hill that Jesus walked up where I believe he was saying, I get to do this and I have to do this. And I believe as you walk through your week this week, there are gonna be (laughs) marriage equivalents of Calvary that you're gonna be invited into. And if you're a single man in this room, your, marital, your, your I Calvary love you. It's, I Calvary love my future wife enough to remain pure. I Calvary love my wife, my future wife enough to uh, not go here or do this or uh, sacrifice my purity for this whim. But married fellows in the room, I know you usually tell your wife you love her. But what if we could put out in front, hey, I Calvary love you. So that in seeing that that is our benchmark, that is what we're heading to, that is the true fruition of a Christian husband's love to his wife, that you may find yourself stumbling into that love more and more often and so that your wife sees Jesus in you and you begin to show her the visible reality that you're laying your life down for her and so she's able to more and more grasp and more and more glorify the God who did lay his life down fully for her. And for all of us in the room, now I invite you into a place of communion, where hopefully you can see Jesus and hear Jesus saying those very words to you. You don't have to just, you, I want you to, not just women, not just wives are gonna hear these words, I Calvary love you. Every person, every person under the sound of my voice should be able to hear Jesus saying to this, I don't just love you like when you do good. I don't just love you because you're creating God's image. I Calvary love you. I love you in such a way that I fully understand that you could never have repaid me anything. But I'm gonna give you everything and now you owe me nothing. I'm gonna ask that you give me your life because you don't owe me. You're not trying to repay me back. You can't pay me back. Matter of fact, the whole rest of this thing is just gonna be me showing you and guiding you into abundant life. I'm just gonna continue to give you more as you surrender to how I'm gonna guide you. So I pray as you commune with him today, you you lean into and trust this heartfelt reality. And we're gonna sing a song simply declares, there's nothing else that I want except for you, Jesus. I'm not, I don't want a spouse. Uh, I don't uh, want um, a, a child. I don't want uh, them to notice me. I don't, I don't even, right here in this moment, I don't even my, I want my husband or my wife to get their crud together. I just want you. I'm not looking for them to be my savior. I know you are. And after we sing this song, I have the unbelievable privilege of baptizing a young woman of God. And I pray you stick around to celebrate that with her and with us as a church family.
Let's pray and you commune with God. Jesus, we thank you for your blood. Pour out on a cross for us. We thank you for your body broken so we can be made whole. Let us commune with you and hear loud and clear, you speaking over us. I, Calvary, love you. In your name, amen.